yeah, let me just pray. God, you are holy. You are so, you are holy. You're set apart. Father, you are amazing. We worship you, God. Just take this time. Make it yours. Speak through your word to me, Lord, to everyone. And um, yeah, help us to just learn more about who you are through it. And we ask this through your son, Jesus. Amen. Yeah, we're continuing our series in Romans uh, chapter 2, 1 to 11. We're going to read the passage first, uh, page 940 in the Pew Bible. Uh, I will also have it on the screen. And I'll give you a little time if you want to turn, flip to it. Verse 1. You, therefore... Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Same things is referring to the latter part of chapter 1, sexual immorality, wickedness, greed, envy, strife. Don Blair talked about it uh, last week when he covered Romans 1. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for every good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Uh, so <clears throat> there are a, a plethora of opportunities in our time for judging others. On a personal level, personal relationships certainly, and also on the societal level, too. Uh, this is a relevant passage for our time. And I'm going to expand on this later, but um, judgment in this passage basically means thinking you're better than others. Uh, and, and, and we may know intellectually that we're not better than others. I mean, you know, we're Christian, right? We know we're not better than others, but oftentimes our tone or the way that we talk to someone or about someone actually betrays the fact that we do, in fact, believe that we think we're better. And, and here's the thing. Maybe you're like me, uh, where sometimes uh, I, I don't feel like my biggest struggle is judging people um, and thinking I'm better than them because I'm not sinning the way that they're sinning or screwing up their life the way that they're screwing up their life. But often what I can struggle with is judging the people that are judging others, you know? Yeah, like them, because I'm not judging. And so if you feel like you're not 
struggling with judgmentalness on quote, quote, sinners, there's a good chance that you're being uh, judgmental of those self-righteous people that are being judgmental in our society right now. Judging is so ingrained in our sin nature. If we're not judging people because they're sinners, then we're probably judging people for being self-righteous, and that makes us self-righteous. And so how can we, as Christ followers, not follow the way of the world, which the way of the world is judging others, thinking that you're better than others because of this, that. How can we instead be humble and have love as we deal relationships and as we interact with a sinful culture? The passage that we're looking at today uh, answers these questions. And so one thing I want to point out before we go verse by verse here is that um, the recipients of this letter are Christians, believers. We see this clearly in chapter 1, 7 and 8. It says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And then verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. He's writing to Christians. But this passage in chapter 2 is seemingly talking uh, to people who are being, going to be condemned, right? Uh, and, it, and it can perplexing, but it can be explained. One commentary says it this way. Um, in chapter 2, it is the second person singular you that Paul uses in making his accusation. This does not mean that Paul is now accusing his readers, the Christians, of these things. Were he to do that, the second person plural would have been needed. Rather, Paul utilizes here a literary style called diatribe. Diatribe style uses the literary device of imaginary dialogue with a student or opponent. And so uh, Paul is inviting his readers uh, alongside him as he confronts this opponent. And the opponent is an unbelieving, self-righteous Jew. And applied more broadly, uh, a self-righteous person. And so in chapter 1, uh, Don Blair last week, uh, Doug the week before, mainly talking about Gentiles. Uh, he switches here to right, self-righteous Jews. And so we'll go, we'll go verse by verse here, and I'm going to include some of the Greek definitions that stood out to me. Um, they'll be in red, helping us to understand how that same Greek word was used in un, other ancient Greek literature uh, and also other parts of the Bible, just to get more of a well-rounded uh, meaning of that word. So verse 1, you therefore have no excuse. You are without defense. Judgment, it means to separate, to select, determine, condemn, resolve, decree, preside over with the power of giving judicial decisions. That's how that Greek word was used back then. All those kind of things. On someone else, judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. You are giving judgment against, you are sentencing, you are damning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And actually in the Greek there, it's just the same. You who pass judgment do the same. And so first thing we need to define is judgment. And I, I, I talked a little bit about it in the beginning, but it's not talking about discernment here. Like knowing right from wrong. That's not, that's not uh, what it's talking about. Knowing right from God, wrong, sorry, knowing right from wrong as God defines those is absolutely necessary as a Christ follower, Right? See, the world tends to uh, say that saying anything is right or wrong is judgmental. And, and that's not what it's talking about here. 
And looking at more at how that Greek word is used, we can start to see what it means. Back there, separate, to select, to determine, to condemn. Um, those all have a finality to them, like we're the judge. And, and it, but it doesn't seem so bad, right? I mean, we have God's word, we know right from wrong. Um, but verse 2 it may go wrong and take it too far. V- verse 2 says, Now we know that God's judgment, his decision, his avenging, his condemnation, his damnation against those who do such things is based or down from or according to truth, reality, fact. God's judgment is based on truth. What are we tempted to base our judgment of others on? Few things, subjective opinion, prejudice, bias, ulterior motives to bring others down in order to feel good about ourselves. We are so insecure. Assuming motives that we judge others when we don't know. James 4.12 says, Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Yeah, you judge the law when you're judging people. Interesting. One law, uh, sorry, let me, what? Uh, There is only, pretty important part, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So, you know, we, we convince ourselves that we have the right to judge others. And I think one of the biggest convince ourselves of this is, well, I don't struggle with the particular sin that they're struggling with. And so, I can condemn them for it. I can shame them for it. Because I don't struggle with what they're struggling with. What's interesting, though, we all want to be biblical Christians, right, who believe the Bible, is the text doesn't say, for at whatever point you judge another, you yourself better be good, better be a good example in that area so that you have the right to judge them in that area. And and the text doesn't say you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment struggle in other areas. It says, you who pass judgment do the same. And so we're left with a couple options here. Either A, you actually secretly struggle with the same things that you're judging others for, or B, you don't struggle with the exact same things, but it's more the idea that all sin stems from the same sin nature that lives in us all, and it's referring to that. And I tend to think maybe the latter, but it definitely could be both. I've been studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount lately, and part of that, Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And what that meant in their time, pretty similar to today, was, quote, unlawful intercourse with another's wife. Jesus continues, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery, unlawful intercourse with another's wife, in, with her in his heart. And so one thing I thought about was, <clears throat> okay, so what has more consequences? Lusting in your mind for a woman that's not your wife, or pursuing her 
sing and having intercourse with her. What has more consequences? It's pretty obvious. The actual act has more consequences. But Jesus, it's crazy. He blows self-righteousness out of the water when he declares that differing consequences of different sin, how some obviously have more terrible consequences than others, doesn't matter. Do you get that? We're all condemned. Every single one of us, we like to compare sin with others, and if their sin wrecks their life more, if their sin consequences outwardly, well then, um, they're worse than us, we're better than them, we can judge them, right? But that is not what Jesus is saying here. We are supremely challenged. Who are you, mere man, mere man, to judge others? He literally says that pursuing and sleeping with a woman that's not your spouse, potentially wrecking your marriage, wrecking her marriage, maybe an unwanted pregnancy, maybe an STD, is just as bad as having a, lost, a lustful thought in the hiddenness of your mind. We are all equally condemned, be it from us to think that we are better than others. And I would submit to you that the, the, the only that we only start to think we're better than others, convincing ourselves, you know, that we have the right to judge others when we're using our own perceived, keyword perceived, righteousness as a standard. But it says, do not judge. That's a command by Jesus. Do not judge. We have the same sin nature living in us as, same as the worst of the worst out there that we see. Same sin nature living in us. Maybe, here's where I'm challenged, maybe we've just learned or have been taught how to struggle with sin that has less terrible consequences. Obviously, there's merit in that, right? To struggle with sin that has less terrible consequences. I mean, I want that for my kids, for them to struggle with things that doesn't wreck their life. But it doesn't make us better at all. God is the judge, he is holy, and he is the standard. And certainly, certainly, here's another way we, we, we tend to go. Certainly, just because we do the same things, quote, quote, and judge, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't call out sin in others. Okay, look, we are called as believers to love each other, and one part of loving each other is calling out sin in others. And so we don't just throw that out because we're not supposed to judge and kind of do it the way the world does it. But acknowledging that we are equal sinners changes our demeanor when we call out sin in others. We'll be humble when we do it, when we acknowledge ourselves as equally in need of a savior as the worst of the worst. That's what Jesus was trying to say there in, in sermon. We will be humble, humble as we confront. We should be set apart from the world, in our culture especially, as we confront. We are called to confront. How are we to confront? Humbly. 2 Peter 4, 2, or sorry, 2 Timothy, preach the word. Be, be ready in season and out of season. 
rebuke, correct, and encourage, do those. How? With great patience and careful instruction. You know, and on another note, uh, maybe you personally have been judged by people. And, and, And this is freeing for you. Because God is the judge. Those people who made you feel inferior are not. Praise the Lord. Verse 3. So when you, oh man, I'm only on verse 3. Um, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape or flee or seek safety from God's judgment? The answer is no. A couple observations here of the sin Nature that lives in all of humanity. One, we can be completely blinded that we are the ones, God's judgment. It's like when Nathaniel, the prophet Nathaniel, for those who know your Bible stories, when he confronted David, he uh, draws up and tells this story of this evil person um, taking advantage of another person. And King David was like, I'm going to send that person to the dungeon for the rest of his life. And Nathaniel says, no, the person is you. You. (laughs) I lost my breath there. The person is you. It's like we can be completely blinded of that. Two, we have the ability to think we're going to escape God's judgment when we actually won't. That's kind of scary. Three, we can be blinded to our own sin and just see sin Sometimes, you know, when I'm sitting in church or a conference and receiving a hard teaching, uh, my first thought is, man, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear this, you know? Try to convince me that you don't struggle with that, too. Maybe even right now. Maybe you're doing that right now. We are tempted to immediately think of others who this applies to and not first thinking about ourselves. This message is for you. Stop thinking about the person next to you. It's for you, and it's for me. It's for me too. Verse four, and if you look closely in this um, of one to 11, uh, verse four is the reason why we're tempted to judge others. It says, or do you show contempt for, that means think little or nothing of, the riches or fullness or abundance of his kindness, God's kindness, his goodness, his gentleness, his forbearance, that means tolerance, self-restraint, God's holding back, God's delaying, God's patience, his long-suffering, his endurance with us, his perseverance with us, his slowness in avenging wrongs, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you or bring you or guide or move you to repentance, that's a change of mind, a change change of something done, a reversal. So two things happen in this verse that move us to be tempted to judge others. One, thinking little or nothing of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience toward you. And two, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. In other words, when we think much of his kindness and forbearance and patience toward us, we won't judge others. And when we realize that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance, us, 
to repentance, we won't judge others. We won't have this arrogant self-righteousness, thinking we're better than others when we do these two things. And so let me explain, and I'll start with the latter. Here's the question. If we're not realizing that God is kind toward us to help us repent, then what are we thinking his kindness to us is for? Because whatever we're thinking God's kindness toward us is for, that is moving us to judge others. And here's what I think. We think his kindness toward us deep down is because we deserve it. Remember, he's confronting self-righteousness here. Uh, In other words, I deserve God's kindness, and that moves me to judge others because they are less deserving. Does that make sense? But God doesn't show us kindness because we deserve it. What does the text say? We're going to be biblical. He shows us kindness to lead us to repent because we don't deserve it. And if we think much of his kindness, forbearance, and patience is because we know we need forgiveness. And so we hold God's patience toward us as precious. And when we know of our need for forgiveness, we will be patient with others in the same boat. If we realize God's kindness brings us to repentance, then we won't judge because it's not us who brought us to repentance. Get that there and provided that opportunity for us to repent. It's not us. It's God's kindness that brought us to repentance that provided the opportunity because God could have justly, immediately condemned us. Every single one of us, we didn't do anything to earn even the opportunity for repentance. Does that make sense? The problem is we tend to believe that we deserve the opportunity for repentance. We believe we deserve second chances, right? But we don't. Jesus makes that very clear, even in the Servant of the Mount. God's kindness, his holding back, his delaying judgment provide the opportunity for us to repent. Um, by the way, you know, when I'm on campus, uh, one of the biggest barriers to people accepting Jesus or even just, just having a right view of Jesus is their experience of self-right judgmentalness from a church. And instead of hearing the gospel, they've heard the message of basically become like us so you can feel superior to others like we do. And that's tragic, and let's not try to contribute to that. Verse 5, but because, you know, because 2 Corinthians 5, you know, says we are Jesus' ambassadors. So that's why they're having a wrong view of Jesus oftentimes as people, you know, and so, um, and we're ambassadors, we're ambassadors, so. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, that's hardness, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up or accumulating, amassing wrath, that's anger, vengeance, agitation of soul, violent emotion, that's how that Greek word has been used back then, 
Isn't it awesome? I love just looking at that kind of stuff. You're, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment, his just sentence will be revealed. That's laying bare, manifested, made visible to all. The Greek word for revealed is apocalypsis. So question, in this verse, who is storing up wrath? Hint, it's not God. It's people. It's us against ourselves. And this distinct is quite significant. Ezekiel 33 says it well. It says, as surely as I live, declares a sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. In other words, his pleasure is when they turn, when we turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. God offers his hand to lead us to repentance, not wrath, repentance. And that Greek word there, by the way, in verse four, for leading us to repentance means basically um, to lead by the hand, to accompany to a place. Sending you somewhere, like go over there, it's leading you, leading you by the hand. That's God's heart. Second Peter, he is patient with you. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. And this is so important to emphasize because the day of God's wrath is coming. Judgment day, Revelation 20. Our God, our creator, whether we like it or not, has wrath for sin and the unrepentant. And it's not just sinners that are unrepentant, it's the self-righteous that are unrepentant. You see the Greek there, anger, vengeance, violent emotion. It's unsettling, and it should be. Verse 6, God will repay or discharge what is due, because he's just, each person according to what they have done. And then verse 7 to 8, it describes the two scenarios, only two, by the way. 7, to those who by persistence in doing good or uh, oh, sorry, to those who persist by persistence in doing good seek or aim at, strive after, crave, glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, that means contentious, fighting for self. For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, that follow is loaded tr to trust obey, to be persuaded by, to have confidence in evil, to believe, to strive, to please, please, to yield to, to assent to the authority of evil, to make friends with evil. And evil is unrighteousness, iniquity, or injustice like a, of a judge. There will be wrath and anger. That wrath is the same Greek word as before. Anger is new. Anger means wrath, fierceness, passion, Rage. That Greek word for anger, by the way, Greek word that Paul uses in his lists of sin, human sin, when he says anger, um, jealousy, fits of rage. Yeah, same Greek word. God has that. Once again, this is what Paul is emphasizing. Wrath, anger, fierceness against sin and the unrepentant. Basically, perfect Justice, perfect justice. In verse 9, you can put it up there. I've already read it earlier, but just for the sake of time, you can just read some of it. 
An interesting observation of verse 9 to 11. Jews are both the first to be disciplined and judged and the first to be the first to be rewarded. Uh, and it's sort of a, an example of when you're given much, much is required. Because Romans 9 says it well, Paul talks to the Jews, he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the, defi- the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them, the Jews, is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Commentary says it this way, God will deal with the Jew first because his privilege was greater. He received special revelation who God is in addition to natural revelation. Natural revelation, what it's talking about basically is Romans 1.20, last week or the week before, when it talks about God has revealed who he is through creation to, to the point where no one has an excuse. Um, but then special revelation is how God specifically revealed himself to the Jews. And you know, at first glance, taken alone, verses 7 to 10 uh, could lead people to believe that it's just about being good enough, right? <clears throat> like to those who do, do good and to those who do bad. Um, but if it's just, just about being good enough, sense that re- repentance is required. <clears throat> if you're good enough, then what are you repenting from? And we read scripture in light of other scripture. It's not about being good enough. In 1 Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. How? Not through being good, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 110, we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, our doing good won't rescue us. I want to pound that. Every conversation I have with a freshman Christian that has their lives thinks it's about being good enough. I don't know how, but I want to pound that. Jesus saves us. Our doing good doesn't. God is so good. He provides a fully accessible rescue from his wrath. And so just to finish up here, from the passage about God He is gentle toward us. We get this from verse 4 especially. He is good toward us. He shows self-restraint. He is patient with us. He is slow in avenging our wrongs against him. He desires heart from us, verse 5. He is planning and preparing for a day of his wrath. He has wrath, anger, vengeance, Violent emotion, rage toward those that are unrepentant, the sinners and the self-righteous. He will discharge what is due to all. But he offers his hand to lead us to repentance every time ongoing for the rest of our lives. And to finish up, when we realize and remember his abundant kindness toward us, it leads us to personal repentance of sin or our self-righteousness and judging. And when we realize and remember his abundant patience toward us, we won't judge others because 
We are just in need of a savior ourselves. And when we call out sin in others, we will do it humbly. Let me pray. God, you are worthy to be feared. You are worthy to be feared. And so we do fear you and we praise you um, because you have made reconciliation to you and actually the ability for our sins to be wiped clean. You have made that accessible to the nations, to us. And so we desperately grasp onto Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we will not suffer the coming wrath because of you alone. And Lord, just help us to be good ambassadors of you. We struggle. I struggle. Lord, help us. Um, Help us, Father. Thank you that you have mercy and grace even for judgmentalness. Praise you, Jesus, because we are under you and we are in you. And so help all those here or those that don't know you, Lord, to, to know your amazing grace your amazing grace, and we sing, our God is an awesome God. You are an awesome God. Amen.